Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 8. As today we continue our journey through this book, and it's a difficult book because of the fact that it's pretty much uh, just telling us the fact that God is going to judge his people. But it's a book that if we take it to heart, we can actually uh, learn in the sense that God wants to warn us before anything crazy happens. And so here in Jeremiah chapter 8, I've entitled it The Prodigal Nation because I think in one sense, looking at Judah, the southern kingdom where Jeremiah was prophesying to, we can relate to this chapter uh, as the United States of America. And we are a prodigal nation as well because we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles. So you go to Washington, D.C., you look at the early documents of our nation, and you had the scriptures everywhere. We were a Christian nation, but unfortunately we have drifted uh, so far away from God that it's actually becoming uh, a time where we can honestly say, looking at the United States of America, that we are worthy of judgment. So to me, it makes perfect sense, and you guys probably know this, right? But the next event, probably on the prophetic calendar, is the rapture of the church, which can happen at any time, and then the seven-year tribulation, and God will judge uh, this nation. And so we read here in Jeremiah chapter 8, it's actually a continuance from the previous chapter, in which basically God said, I'm going to kill uh, the leaders, uh, the, the Jews, this, the nation of Judah, and I'm going to have them slaughtered by the Babylonians, so much so that there's going to be corpses everywhere, mounds and mounds of dead bodies lying out in the open. That's what's going to happen. And so we pick it up in verse 1. It says, In that day, says the Lord, the enemy will break open the graves of the kings and officials of Judah, and the graves of the priests, prophets, and common people of Jerusalem, they will spread out their bones on the ground before the sun, moon, and stars, the gods, my people have loved, served, and worshiped. And their bones will not be gathered up again or buried, but will be scattered on the ground like manure. You know, one of the things that I want to share, you know, if you're out there and you've drifted away from God, this chapter, even though it's pretty intense and it's pretty severe, it is simply an invitation from God to you to come back to him. Come back to him. God, is brought, God brought you here tonight. You're somehow listening to these words because if you've drifted away, God loves you and God does not want you to suffer the consequences of a life of disobedience. God loves you. And so what he does right here is he tells them this is going to happen unless you get your life right. Here it says the enemy is going to break open those graves. And think about it, the kings, I mean, the officials or government people. I mean, we're talking priests, prophets. You know, in those days, uh, they would, uh, when the enemy would come in and conquer a nation, they would often desecrate those graves. They would open them up, sometimes because they wanted to get some of the treasures that were in there, the ones that were, you know, the king's uh, tombs or graves. But, but, but in this case, it was basically the, the ultimate insult. Imagine someone going to your mom's, you know, grave site, you know, and, and digging it up and taking out those bones and scattering them across the cemetery, scattering them across the city. That's what the Babylonians were going to do 
to the graves of the Judah, uh, the land of Judah. And, and so it was the ultimate insult. Tony Evans said God's judgment on Judah would be so complete that even the dead would not escape. What we find is that God's people were guilty of idolatry. You know, they were guilty of worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. And God says, okay, you want to do that? And so he scattered their bones and bodies across that. They'd be like manure eventually. And he says, I'll just leave it open right in front of all the gods that, that, that you love. And God says, you worship them, then I understand there's going to be consequences. Their bones and bodies would never be buried. It would decay into manure. And according to Jeremiah right here, it's because the people, they didn't just serve these gods. They didn't just worship these gods. They loved these gods. And so this was a a crazy thing. You know, when I read this right here, you know, I don't know how you guys are. You'd be like, well, man, that's got nothing to do with me. I don't worship the sun. I don't worship the moon. I don't worship the stars. You know, um, I I think that um, that when I think about worshiping the stars, I think of astrology. You know, when I grew up, my parents were big into astrology, you know, and so I was Sagittarius. My dad was a Gemini. My mom was a Leo. You guys know what I'm talking about, that kind of stuff, right? And they were very much, uh, you know, guided by these things. And so, you know, they would actually get involved in that. And in one sense, I believe with all my heart that astrology is a worship of the stars because they say, hey, there you can tell your fate and there you can get your guidance. And what you're doing, I mean, believe you me, worshiping the stars is nothing because those stars are created for the glory of God. But what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to demons. And that's what ended up happening. And so, you know, I don't know, you're about to be here tonight and you're like, well, I don't do astrology, Manny. And I don't worship the sun and I don't worship the moon. But understand this, and we always come back to this. I know it's a basic Bible truth. But anything or anyone we put before God is an idol. And I have to examine my own life. Am I guilty of idolatry? Is there anyone, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, kid, yourself, whatever it might be, an ambition that you have, a possession that you have? I mean, some people worship their phones. I mean, you can't get them off their phones. You know, they won't read their Bible, but they'll, you know, they'll hang out with their phones. And so you name it, television, an entertainment, a hobby, I mean, money, they, they, they can't come to church because they have to work. And the reason why they work so much is because they want the money. They want the overtime. Listen, you're guilty of worshiping mammon. And so if God's people would repent of our idolatry, we would be a strong church. You would be a strong man of God. I would be strong. You would be a strong woman of God if you truly worshiped God first so that's where they were so you might be here and you're like well i don't worship the sun the moon and the stars but we have to examine our own life truly is god number one you know i've always thought it was interesting the way that john ends his first epistle in first john chapter 5 and verse 1 it was almost like this is like the heaviest warning he says little children keep yourselves from idols amen ask yourself tonight Is God truly number one in your life? You know, if only these guys had heeded the warning, the judgment would, you know, be so bad that they would even despair of life. You know, it's interesting what we read here in verse 3, and the people of this evil nation 
who survive will wish to die rather than live where I will send them. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. And so there's a couple of views on this. Some people believe well, what it's saying right here is that, you know, these people, they, 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 they'd rather, rather die than, than live. And so they're going to be carried over to Babylon and their whole life will be a life of regret. I mean, a life in which, man, I don't even want to live. But, but others believe that basically what ends up happening is because they don't want to live, they kill themselves. They commit suicide. They take their own life. And that's happened in the history of the Jews. I, I remember we're getting ready to go to Israel in a couple of weeks. And one of the places that we're going to visit is this amazing fortress that Herod built. Herod was an amazing builder. Uh, it's called Masada. And so when the Romans conquered the Jews in 70 AD, 1.2 million Jews were slaughtered in Jerusalem. But there was uh, about a thousand or more Jews that fled to Masada. And it was this fortress and it was this crazy how, how strong it is. And you can still see it today sitting up on the hill. But, but the Jews that were up there as the Romans, they surrounded Masada for three years, for three years. And so finally, when the Jews realized they could not win this victory, you know what they did? 967 Jewish men women and children took their own life. There was a mass suicide, just like Jeremiah is talking about right here. But see, it didn't have to be that way. If only we would put God first. But they were not able to do that. It made no sense. Look at verse 4. It says, Jeremiah, say to the people, this is what the Lord says. When, when people fall down, don't they get up again? When they discover they're on the wrong road, don't they turn back? I mean, have you guys ever fallen down? I'm just curious. We've all fallen down. I remember one time I was working at the market, and I was a hustler back in the day. I started in the grocery store when I was 17 years old, and I was one of those box boys. It's probably different now, but you know they didn't have the, the right price on it. And so they would send the box boy to go and find the price, and I remember I used to run. I don't know why. I just like running in the market. And then I remember one time I ran, and, you know, I don't know if you remember those, uh, those chrome bars, and they would separate, you know, this from that, and I jumped over it. I, was, I would always hurdle it, you know, no problem, man. I was a lot younger back then. But I remember one time in front of all the customers and all the workers, I was hurdling it, and boom, I got caught, and I fell on my face, man. Now, there's a temptation when you do something like that to, to stay down. You're like, just stay down. But there's also the temptation, normally what we do is we get up right away, right? Because we don't want anybody to see us. Or at least, you know, hopefully we can diminish the number of people that saw us, right? You know, and when we fall, I mean, you don't just stay on the ground. You don't just be like, oh, well, I fall. I'm just going to stay here, you know, for the rest of my life. I mean, no. You know, when you fall, get up. Maybe you're here today and you've fallen. Get up. Get up, man. Don't stay down on the ground where the enemy is going to come. Because if you've ever been in a fight, you know what I'm talking about. If that person's on the ground, next thing you know, you start getting kicked. And that's what the enemy will do. You know, Jeremiah is here saying, tell them, when you fall, don't you get up. When you get lost, when you get lost, and that happens to me a lot of times when I'm driving, you know, you make the wrong turn or whatever, you know, you reroute. You know, you get, you know, that whatever that you know, that GPS, that, you know, app on your phone, and you get back on track. 
That's what he's trying to say. It doesn't make any sense for someone, if they fall, to stay down on the ground. It doesn't make any sense for anyone, if they're lost, to stay lost. That, that's what he's asking them right there. When they discover they're on the wrong road, don't they turn back? Then why do these people stay on their self-destructive path? Why do the people of Jerusalem refuse to turn back? They cling tightly to their lives and will not turn around. I listen to their conversations and don't hear a word of truth. And then that's an interesting thing. This is a quick side note. What is the substance of your conversations? When you talk to your friends, do you ever talk about the Lord? You know, it's a big question, especially for all, for all of us, but some of you young people here, I want to instill within you some wisdom and hopefully some courage. Ask your friend, hey, how can I pray for you? You know, somehow begin to get the Lord in the conversation. But if all you're talking about is all the other worldly stuff, you might not have a friend who's saved. Or maybe you just don't know how to fellowship here. God is here saying, I'm listening to their conversations, and I don't hear anything about the word of truth. He even says in verse 6, is anyone sorry for doing wrong? Does anyone say what a terrible thing I have done? No, all are running down the path of sin as swiftly as a horse galloping into battle. You know, when when we're warned, when we're on the self-destructive path, hopefully we get right with God. You know, I I, got to tell you this, because I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm an old guy now. I know a lot of people, you probably do too, who used to serve the Lord, but they don't anymore. Or maybe they were raised in the church, but once they got old enough to make their own decisions, they no longer come to church service because they really didn't get interested and they didn't open up their heart and they really didn't get rooted or grounded. You know, some people, they still come to church, but they kind of choose to do it on their own terms. You know, this right here is a picture of people who are still in church, but they're not really there. Okay, there are those who leave the church, and I've seen that many times, you know, where they, you know, don't read their Bible, they don't pray, they don't obey, and they've chosen to stay away. You know, God says, listen, that's not what we need to do. You know, it's like a horse, he says, it is full steam ahead. And you guys have seen the movies, right? And nothing's going to stop that horse because that's how they're trained and that's how they're wired, full steam ahead to the place of the dead. You know, Warren Risby said they were like horses rushing into a battle, having no idea of the dangers involved. You know, horses are trained to obey and they don't know better, but people are different. People who are made in the image of God, they ought to know where they're going. You know, in in a message like this, you know, maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you're on track, praise God, you can send this to someone who needs to be warned. You can be used by God to save their life. You know, the Bible talks about in the book of Jude how we need to pull people out of the fire. And so for us, you know, that's one thing. But I know for all of us here, myself included. And maybe it's because I'm a a bad pastor. I don't know. Maybe I'm a bad pastor. But when I read this right here, I, I think, man, Lord, I need to take these warnings to myself. Because if I if I preach it, 
and I, whatever, been a Christian for a long time, and I don't live it, then I'm, I'm bringing judgment to myself. And I have that fear of God. And so all I know is when I'm reading this, I'm not one of those who checks out and says, oh, this ain't for me, you know, because I got it all good. Absolutely not. You know, even though Paul the Apostle grew as a Christian, he'd been there for 30 years, he said, I'm still the chief of all sinners. And so for us, my prayer is that we would take these things uh, seriously. Believe you me, this is not a message meant to beat you up. This is a message intended to lift you up and put you up on the rock and make you a strong man, make you a strong woman. You know, Warren Wisby said that these were uh, messages that God intended to change us. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You know, if you're out there and you're not a Christian, maybe you were raised in it, maybe you heard it when you were small, you never really got in, or you never got saved. That's, right. That's what he's saying right there. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let him know that if you return to the Lord, then you will have uh, this mercy and God will pardon you abundantly. And I like Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, come, let us return to the Lord. Now he's speaking more to believers. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, so now he will heal us. He has injured us, now he will bandage our wounds. You know, and again, you know, maybe you are not out there doing the drugs and, and all that kind of stuff, but, but sometimes our hearts move. Sometimes our hearts get cold. You know, I believe with all my heart that if you're a Christian and living in the last of the last days, you should be on fire, man, on fire. This should not be a lukewarm thing. This should not be a half-hearted thing. I mean, do we realize what's going on? I mean, people should be able to see that in your life. And that's got to be evident. What we see right here and looking at this is God is saying, come back. Come back to where you belong. You know, I've always loved uh, Luke 15. If you guys would, let's turn there. Because that's really what this is about, you guys. I don't want to beat you up because if I do, you might beat me up. And so, you know, I don't want to do that. But but I just want, if there's anyone here, there might be one or two or three people here that you know your heart has drifted away from God. This is the night to come back to the Lord and reignite that fire. You know, Luke 15 is all about this heart that God has. It says in verse 1, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. They did not like the fact that Jesus was hanging out with sinners, right? And so Jesus told them this story. He said, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he gathers his friends together and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. 
In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now here we are, you know, among the 100 people. Is there one person here tonight that, that, you know, God is looking for you? You're a sheep who has strayed. Understand, that's how much God loves you and that he would leave the 99 and go looking for you. And so when he re, you know, brings him back, you know, just the joy that he has. You have the lost sheep, and then there's a lost coin in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call on her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my, my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. You know, I mean, it's a trip, man. God is looking for you. Think about that. God is looking for you. You might be here, never accepted the Lord. He's looking for you. Maybe you've been here, you drifted away from God like big time. You're out there, you know, sowing your wild oats. God's looking for you. But you might even be here, and in all reality, you're just a Christian, but you're a very nominal Christian. You're a very lukewarm Christian. You got one foot in the church, one foot in the world. God is looking for you. God is. I'm not, not the church. We love you. Don't get me wrong, but you have to understand the way that this is. This is God looking for you, saying, Come back to where you belong. You know, you got the lost sheep, you got the lost coin, but then the one that's most famous, I guess, is a lost son. Look at verse 11. It says, To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story that a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So this is real quick. That's bad. That's basically the son saying, I don't care if you live or die. I mean, I'll pretty much see you as dead. Just give me my money. I mean, that's how, how horrible, how horrible of a son he was. But the father obliged. He didn't have to, but he obliged. And so a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and he moved to a distant land and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And so he returned home to his father. There it is. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. 
Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So Ryan likes this. The party began. (laughs) The party began. Why? Because you came to your senses and you came home. And you came home with an understanding that that other life, that prodigal life, is nothing out there. I guarantee you it will never fill the void within. But you came home, and what we find is when you came home, your father wasn't upset with you. I mean, the father right here, I don't know if you guys would have reacted the same way, but when he saw him, you know, he ran to him. Some say he was probably looking for him every day, waiting for him to come back. You know, in those days for a Jewish man to run, that wasn't really culturally acceptable. But he ran to him, embraced him, put sandals, ring, robe, killed the fatted calf. He partied, he celebrated. Listen, if you're out there and you're thinking, no, I can't come back to God because he won't forgive me. I can't come back to God because he won't, you know, accept me. I can't come back to God because, you know what, I'll become just a second-class citizen and, you know, maybe I'll just be a hired servant. God says, no, you come back and you watch what I will do with your life. And really, when we're in the book of Jeremiah and we're talking about all these, these warnings and God's giving these, you know, prophecies regarding the fact that they were going to be judged, it was all motivated by his desire so that the people would come to that place in which they would love the Lord the way they were supposed to. I mean, this is the God that had called them in Ezekiel 16 when they were dying in their blood. This is the God that had called them and redeemed them out of Egypt, who led them through the wilderness, who blessed them with the promised land, who gave them everything that was good. And yet they had turned their backs on him. And God is just saying, come back. Watch what I will do you know, with your life. You know, back in the, in the book of Jeremiah, we have to know, you guys, when we're reading this, you know, words of judgment, that this is why Jeremiah is saying these things. Not that it was set in stone, it was fate, nothing they could do about it. It was so that they would change. You know, this is incredible how, how senseless this was. Look at verse 7 of Jeremiah chapter 8. It says, even the stork that flies across the sky knows the time of her migration, as do the turtle dove, the swallow, and the crane. They all return at the proper time each year. But not my people. They do not know the Lord's laws. And here it's interesting how Jeremiah talks about the horses and uses them as an example. And now he talks about the birds there's migrant birds that follow the instinct God puts inside of them. Have you guys ever looked into that? The way that uh, birds, uh, they migrate. It's just amazing to me how he puts that instinct within them. The migration of the white stork, it flies south from their summer breeding grounds in Europe in August and September, heading for Africa. And there they spend the winter in Savannah from Kenya and Uganda south to the Cape province of South Africa. I think we have a a picture here. And so you guys know, I mean, that's Europe. This is Africa, South Africa. I mean, just think about the thousands of miles they travel instinctively returning 
returning to where they were made to be. And God is saying, I trip, I'm tripping out on you. These birds know when to return, but for some reason you don't. And so God is calling them through Jeremiah. He's just, he's come, come back to, to me. But unfortunately, we see many times people refuse. Warren Worsby said, made in the image of God, men and women ought to be as obedient to divine instruction as birds are to natural instinct. That's how obedient we should be. You know, we have instincts, but we also have morals, and we have a God-given conscience. And even though we're superior to animals, many times, unfortunately, the animals put us to shame. Isaiah, the prophet, gave an example in Isaiah 1, verse 3, where it says, even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. I mean, think about that. An ox knows who owns him. Do we know who owns us? You know, looking at this right here, we see the donkey knows its master. Do we know our, our master? Do we know the one who is Lord of our life and the one who cares for us? You know, it, it doesn't make any sense because they hadn't yet come to their senses. It's interesting what Jeremiah says there at the end of verse 7, that they do not know the Lord's laws. And that's the thing. You know, the reason why people drift away a lot of times, you know, is because they don't know the word of God. And so uh, verse 8, he he says, how can you say we are wise because we have the word of the Lord when your teachers have twisted it by writing lies? These wise teachers will fall into the trap of their own foolishness, for they have rejected the word of the Lord. And are they so wise after all? Or as the New King James says, what wisdom do they have? You know, earlier in chapter 7, the people trusted in the temple of the Lord. You know, imagine, you know, you, I don't know, you know, you go to the temple of Solomon, and it was the one that Herod had built in all reality, and it was just beautiful, and you're just, thinking, we're good, God's not going to judge us, there's a sanctuary right here, and we're safe. And so their, their whole trust was in the temple. And so God dealt with them in verse chapter 7, but now their trust is in the Bible. Well, we got the Bible, and we're good. And Jeremiah's here saying, that's not the way it works. Problem was that their teachers were not teaching the word accurately. They were even putting it in writing. They were twisting the scriptures. And I'll tell you what, that is a scary place for an individual to be. Anyone who, uh, the Bible says in James, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you're going to receive a stricter judgment. And so if the teacher's not teaching the word, if the teacher's twisting the word, this is what they were doing. And of course, what's going to happen to the people? What are going to have, what's going to happen to the 40,000 people that attend church every Sunday, listening to Joel Osteen? What will happen to the millions of people who are listening to that man? That man who is twisting the scriptures. That man who is not teaching the scriptures. And this is why the people were off. It was a combination of the teachers twisting the scriptures and the people wanting it that way. No, we shouldn't want to go to a church that makes me feel good 
I, I want a church that makes me good. I want one that says, hey, just teach me the Bible. Okay, today we're in Jeremiah chapter 8. Your responsibility is to teach me Jeremiah chapter 8. That's the way you got to go to church. That's the way you got to find a church that teaches you the word of God and not their own thing. You know, they might read from the Bible, but they don't teach the Bible. That doesn't mean that what we find right here is kind of like, like Wiersbe said, the problem was that these teachers are not teaching the word accurately. And, and what we find for us is possessing the scriptures isn't the same as practicing the scriptures. They put their faith in the temple. No, that's not going to suffice. Now they're putting their faith in the fact that they have the Bible. Well, I got one on my lap. I got seven versions of it in my house. You know, I read it. No, it's not enough. It's not enough. You know, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they had the scriptures. They memorized many of them. But Jesus said in John 5.39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. And so, you guys, it's not about worshiping the Bible. It's about worshiping the God of the Bible. You know, if we wanted to, people twist the scriptures. We could make it say almost anything which is why we need to teach it in context. You need to learn the scriptures in context, and you need to learn the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Peter wrote about the people in his days, the Apostle Peter, who also twisted the scriptures. He said in 2 Peter 3.16, speaking of these things in all of his letters, uh, reading, talking about Paul, some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of the scripture, and this will result in their destruction. And so I do want to encourage you guys, be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you read. Because a lot of these guys that say they're Christians, or some of these people, they're on YouTube or wherever it is, it doesn't necessarily mean they're rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, it was a word of warning to the people. It was a word of warning here, Jeremiah, to the false teachers, the prophets, who were only in it for the money. Look at verse 10. I will give their wives to others and their farms to strangers. From the least to the greatest, their lives are ruled by greed. Yes, even my prophets and priests are like that. They're all frauds. They offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They, they give assurances of peace when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of these disgusting actions? Not at all. They don't even know how to blush. Therefore, they will lie among the slaughtered. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. And if you cross-reference Jeremiah 6, 13 through 15, it kind of says pretty much the same thing. Uh, one of the exceptions, however, is that this one, he mentions the wives. He says right there in, in verse 10, I will give their wives to others. And that, that first consequence is, is pretty heavy. You know, one of the things that you'll find when the Lord is uh, uh, disciplining us, and he'll do it verbally sometimes, sometimes he does it circumstantially, sometimes physically, sometimes fatally. And so the, the verbal warnings will increase in intensity. They'll get worse. And so Jeremiah 6, 13 through 15, this is what's going to happen to you guys. They didn't listen. And then God says, okay, well, let me add something to the sentence. Your wife will be raped. 
Your wife will be ravaged. Your wife will be ruined. Do you care about that? When you got husbands out there that are no longer coming to church service, do they care about their wife? Do they care about their kids? Or is it just them? Why aren't they leading their families where, where they need to be led? You see, you're looking and you're reading this right here, and we don't realize the consequences that other people will have because of our sins. You know, in looking at this, it's so important for us to understand what's going on. You know, there may be some men here tonight or maybe watching online, and you're not in line with the Word of God. I mean, listen, if I could just say this to you, my friend, please. If you're not going to get right for yourself, will you at least get right for your family? Because here we see as a result of these prophets' greed, prophets just for profit, that their wives would be carried away. Imagine being there on that day when judgment came as a false prophet. You ignored the warnings, but then the inevitable arrives. You're beaten down to the ground, and right before you die, you see them taking your wife away to be raped and ravaged and enslaved by the enemy. You know, I pray, you guys, that we're not messing around. That, that we, are you a godly man? Let, you can be. No, we don't be perfect. Don't get me wrong, but you got to be real. There can't be any secret sin. You're looking at this and that when you shouldn't be. I mean, it's important for us to be men and women of integrity. You know, it's so sad. These guys right here, you know, greedy for money. Again, a lot of times that's what makes their, their, their lives tick. And they're not ashamed at any of this. Verse 11 says, they offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. You know, you got some guys out there, Joel Osteen says, I won't talk about sin. God hasn't called me to talk about sin. Dude, have you read your Bible? I mean, it's in there everywhere. But what ends up happening, you got someone when they got a gunshot, you know, when they got a blow in their body, and here's a guy like that, a prophet like that, what does he do? He puts a band-aid over it. No, you got to get surgery. You got to get that bullet out of them. You got to get that cancer out of them. That's what the warnings are. That's why we talk about sin because it needs to be removed. And so looking at this, it's so crazy. You know, people will listen to a passage like this or a message like this and they'll be like, well, I don't really like, you know, he's kind of negative, you know, and, and I just want the positive, you know, I just want the peace. Look at verse 11. They offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wounds. They give assurances of peace when there is no peace. And so God will punish them. We read in verse 13, I will surely consume them. There will be no more harvest of figs and grapes. Their fruit trees will all die. Whatever I gave them will soon be gone. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so the, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, wanting them to, to just, come on, you guys, be on fire for the Lord. You know, don't be one of those half-hearted Christians. You know, if you find yourself without a hunger or thirst for righteousness, then go home and get on your knees and don't get off your knees until it comes. You know, fall in love with the Lord. This is what he's asking. Because if not, then this is what's ahead. If you're not following the Lord with a pure heart, with a reckless abandon, with a genuine, sincere love, then you will never be what God wanted you to be. You will never experience the life 
that God wanted you to live. And there will be consequences to your loved ones as well because you chose not to follow the Lord with all your heart. That's all he's saying. And so he's warning them of these things. You know, when this finally does happen, remember, Jeremiah was prophesying for close to 40 years. Then, you know, they had to, this is really happening. That's what we read in verse 14. And then the people will say, why should we wait here to die? You know, there in those other cities come. Let us go to the fortified towns and, and die there. For the Lord our God has decreed our destruction and has given us a cup of poison to drink because we sinned against the Lord. We hoped for peace, but no peace came. We hoped for a time of healing, but found only terror. The snorting of the enemy's war horses can be heard all the way from the land of Dan in the north. The neighing of all their stallions makes the whole land tremble. They are coming to devour the land and everything in it, cities and people alike. I will send these enemy troops among you like poisonous snakes. You cannot charm. They will bite you and you will die. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, one pastor said their refusal to acknowledge what was coming would be rudely interrupted when the reality of the Babylonian invasion could no longer be denied. You know, the people would realize their sin. And again, I don't know how it's going to happen here in the United States of America, but I promise you it's going to happen. And so it would be weird, huh? Let's just say, you know, China invades, Russia invades, I don't know, someone from the Middle East. I mean, you just never know. How is it going to happen to us? You know, calamities, tragedies. I mean, we just got done, you know, with this whole COVID thing, and some will call it pestilence, others won't. You know, I don't know the details of that, but we definitely see the potential of something that can happen, that can sweep through our nation. And imagine when it starts happening, when it starts happening, you're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's real. It, it can happen. God will judge this nation, I promised you. And so they acknowledge their sin, but, but it's kind of like Judas. It was, it, was, it was too late because the enemy already had them. Because Judas said, I've sinned. I've you know, betrayed innocent blood. He threw the money down and he went and did what? He hung himself. That's why for us, we got to get right before it's too late. You know, one of the things about this right here, I will say this. It kind of reminds me of Eli. Do you guys remember the story of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 3? Um, Eli was a bad high priest, uh, primarily because he allowed his sons uh, to minister when they were in sexual sin. And they were sleeping with a woman that had come to the temple, and they were stealing from the offerings, and they despised the work of God. And Eli didn't do anything about it. He just let them do that thing, right? And so um, Samuel is just a little guy, he's 12 years old, and God, you know, speaks to him. And so, you know, it's kind of cool the way the Lord calls Samuel, Samuel. And, uh, you know, he ends up uh, saying, Eli, hey, did you call me? No, get back to bed. He calls him again, Samuel, Samuel. And so he says, no, you did call me. And Eli says, no, you know what? I didn't. I think maybe it's the Lord. So next time you go back to bed, when you hear your your name, Samuel, Samuel, tell him, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so that's sure enough, the Lord spoke to Samuel. And the word that the Lord spoke to Samuel, the next day Eli says, tell me everything that the Lord said. And this is what uh, Samuel said to Eli. You're going to die. Your house is going to die. Your children will die. 
And you know what Eli said? Oh, well, the word of the Lord, he's good. Rather than just saying, God, forgive me. God, help me. God, spare me. God, show me how I can change. This is kind of what we see right here. They're like, oh, oh well, no, you guys, don't leave this night shrugging your shoulders, thinking that maybe it's too late or it's not applicable, whatever it might be. I mean, let's leave tonight with saying, Lord, you know, have mercy on me. Show me my sin. And God, give me the grace to change, to grow. You know, this is what we see. They were like, oh, well, no big deal. God's judgment's coming. You know, Jeremiah, when it finally does, he doesn't gloat over this. We're going to see as we go through here that he's brokenhearted. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. Look at, at verse 18. He says, my grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. Listen to the weeping of my people. It can be heard all across the land. Has the Lord abandoned Jerusalem, the people ask? Is her king no longer there? Oh, why have they provoked my anger with their carved idols and their worthless foreign gods, says the Lord. And it's interesting in reading this right here. It's like, man, like the people are, are weeping. You know, Jeremiah is weeping and, and God is weeping. And imagine you there one day, you know, uh, in this horrible life. And you knew it wasn't supposed to be that way, but you chose that way, and there you are weeping. You know, the, the, the ones who warned you are weeping. God himself is weeping. And, and what we find is that God doesn't, you know, rejoice over the you know, the death of the wicked. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And remember, Ezekiel was also a prophet in the same time frame, a little later. He's prophesying from Babylon, but they're all trying to warn them. God says, listen, if you get judged, my prayer is that everyone here in this room goes to heaven. Everyone here watching online, anyone listening to study, my prayer is that you go to heaven. My prayer is that you get blessed in life. But if for some reason you choose to disobey and you, you, know, you, you don't go to heaven, you go to hell, you go to the lake of fire, you need to know this, that it was not God's desire for you. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And just like any father, any parent would tell you, we don't enjoy disciplining our children. But, you know, if it's necessary, we, you know, we will. And so verse 20 was a common proverb. It says, the harvest is finished and the summer is gone. The people cry, yet we are not saved. You know, in reading that verse right there, it's just an amazing verse because I wonder if there's anyone here who's not saved. Are, are you saved? Do you know for sure that if you die, you'll go to heaven? You know, if you don't have that confidence, I pray that today you would give your life to Christ. Today you would choose to follow him because Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you on that cross, paid the price for all your sins. Jesus rose again, and if you put your faith 
in Jesus today, then you can be saved. And you can know that when you die, you'll go to heaven. Because one day, none of us knows when, it will be too late. Now, I was thinking about Priscilla. Well, no, I'm sorry, Lisa. What's her name? Lisa Presley? Is that her name? She was only 54 years old. Now, some of you guys here are thinking, oh, 54, I got plenty of time. You know, I'm not that old. And then others of you are thinking, well, that's uh, right about my age. And some are, you know, that can ha- it can happen. We have to be ready. You know, in verse 21, he closes and he says, I, I hurt with the hurt of my people. I, I mourn and am overcome with grief. Is there no medicine in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why is there no healing for the wounds of my people? And and it's interesting the way that it closes here. You know, let me just say this to you. It's almost like Jeremiah is hurting because they're hurting. That's interesting. He's hurting because they're broken. He's hurting because they're in that place. And, And he says, man, it doesn't make any sense that they would have to die Isn't there anyone there? Isn't there a physician there? Isn't there any help for them who are hurting? And maybe you're here tonight or maybe you're watching and you're hurting inside. Your heart is broken. And that's unfortunately leading you to do things that are not of the Lord. And what God wants to do, because this is the reason why people do what they do, What God wants to do is God wants to heal your broken heart. There is a healer there. There is a physician there. His name is Jesus. And my prayer is that if you would run to him, that God would heal your broken heart. Because let's not be um, a chosen frozen. Let's not be a half-hearted Christian. I pray with all my heart that God would capture us. We We all hear have been redeemed by the blood. It's not our life, it's his life. So God help us to live for him.